not sure what the banter is though yeah i you know what i this 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 month's putting me in a weird place mentally with uh <laughs> the oceans in florida being 101 degrees fahrenheit and whatnot so the banter I, I, the banter i might have prepared for, or that might come off the cuff this week might not be the best <laughs> It's gonna be really. Depressing. We really pivoted right, you know, Disney, and then right into this, and um, yeah. So it'll be it'll be interesting for sure. Every, everyone who started listening to us for for Disney Month, uh, yeah, strap in. We had a lot of listeners. <laughs> Here, here's Saturday Nation Dark is what it's gonna be. Um, and my voice represents that. I feel like <laughs> as as I'm as I'm dealing with COVID for a second time. We are Saturday Nation. We are Saturday Nation. <laughs> um, but um. I talked about this I think last week briefly. Yeah, I'm I'm rewatching Project Greenlight. Mm-hmm. These these those seasons are such a time capsule of like late '90s, early 2000s, just everything. Mm-hmm. But still, like a great, I guess, um, how to of how to not make movies and how to make movies. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is interesting going back and looking at those now, knowing that like none of them were successful films. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess Shaker Heights may it may be like the one that more people have seen out of any of them, but um. yeah, like Feast made a little bit of money. That was the horror one, but like it's funny because like every every season because Yuthana has been watching it too. We've all been like kind of binge watching it separately. Where he's like, yeah, every season's like, yeah, well, it can't be as bad as last year, <laughs> is what everyone says. And like each season, it's like, wow, it's so good. We did better, and the next year's like, yeah, it can't be as bad as last year. <laughs> and even like this newest season. At one point, what I thought was the funniest line, because it's not Ben Affleck and Matt Damon doing it. It's Issa Rae and her company and her head development, who I love, is just like when something's going bad, he's like, man, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon be rolling over their graves right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, man, we're, we're really like, it's just the same shit again. You think you think Affleck and Damon saw the final cut of Leisure Class and they were like, yeah, we're done. Just scrap we're it. done. We're, we're finished. This is it. Project Red Light. Project Red Light. <laughs> he's like, I mean. We were like zero for four. Like that's like, <laughs> but it was shot on film, though. Yeah. Was what sh- I love about it, because I kept telling you this, I know it's in season four, and he says this happens throughout every season. It's like, it's like Matt Damon walks into the room and doesn't know what's going on. Like he's like in season four, it's he's just like, yeah, like it's just like Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, and there it is. He's like he walks in the room. He's like, yeah, I got called Pete Fairley called me last night. And they go, oh, you didn't hear? Pete left the project. What? <laughs> Oh, you didn't hear? Einstein thinks we might ignite the atmosphere when we hit the button. It's literally what it is. It's like, <laughs> and like, I wonder if that's just Matt Damon in real life. Sometimes is like he's so busy with like things that matter to him the most, and the others are like, "Wait, mm. what? What happened?" Um. Anyway, enough about Project Greenlight because my voice could go any minute now, everyone. Um. <laughs> but this month, or no, first off, I'm Brand Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is a Nation Podcast After Dark. Um. No, um, but this month we're talking about dystopian movies and what I said, a great follow up to our Disney animation and Alan Menken series, um, because sometimes these dystopian movies feel like they're pretty close, Mm -hmm. pretty close. Um, But when when you think of dystopian films, Thomas, what do you think of? I mean, I mostly think of like the I feel like the it was a big genre in like the 60s and 70s. You know, you think of like uh what what have you got at that era the the original planet of the apes movies yeah. um 
you've got you know the twilight zone episodes that, mm-hmm. that a lot of them dealt with that um running man uh all those kind of thrillers yeah uh from that era and then and then i think they kind of went away for a while uh maybe it was i don't know maybe it was reaganomics giving people false hope for the future or something but well, it's, like, yeah, it's, like, it's like 70s and 80s and then like kind of a big gap and then like matrix comes in yeah at the tail of the 90s and that kind of resets itself yeah yeah and then obviously as as we said a, a few months ago uh strange days not getting enough credit when it when it came out but yeah. um but yeah every everything on the heels of of the matrix uh yeah bring in a lot of that that sci-fi that that's kind of i feel like anytime you have sci-fi that's kind of set on earth it's going to be like somewhat yeah. dystopian if it's not out in space if it's set here on earth we're going to be dealing with with some sort of dystopia so you know we've covered a good amount on the podcast we've done yeah. blade run we've done both blade runners mm-hmm. we did strange days clockwork orange uh, we did as well yeah, which, yeah. which fits in that category mm-hmm. uh the terminator movies in some way like even though it's like yeah. It's not fully dystopian, but it's like something from dystopian future coming to its past, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be covering a lot of that this this month. And yeah, I think because it's like trying to decipher what's dystopian and what's post-apocalyptic because sometimes they're going to be... It's like post-apocalyptic is a genre within dystopian, mm-hmm. uh, dystopian genre. So we'll be talking about several post-apocalyptic movies this month as well. And I think something we'll even be discussing today is like what, you know, what is the apocalypse? Like, you know, with with today's movie, it's like, does does knowing that with absolute certainty that we're headed towards the apocalypse mean that it's already happened or that you can start acting like it's already happened? Because there's that and there's also the idea of like a a totalitarian government stepping in, which I think Mm -hmm. we'll talk about today a little bit with kind of the idea of like immigration within this movie and how essentially England is the, we're talking about children of men today, by the way, um, England is kind of the last nation that's still trying to hold on to civilization, but it's starting to crumble. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see other movies this month that like, it's like, it's right before everything happens where some sort of technology comes into play that showcases the like, dystopian future on the horizon basically yeah we'll talk about seconds this month does that but yeah so yeah so it's going to be kind of an interesting way to like how to decipher what this genre is and the kind of complexities and the variety within it um mm-hmm. but today if i we i basically we basically picked this genre i think based off the movie today because i remember you said early in the beginning of the year this is one you hope to cover at some point yeah yeah i mean well that was mostly just to get into uh, our history with it real quick first of all intro it uh formal intro children yep. of men released in 2006 uh logline is in, in 2027 18 years after all women on earth have mysteriously become infertile a former freedom fighter turned office worker is recruited to help a refugee escape from militant england mm-hmm. that's all we'll say for now but spoilers abound if you yeah. go further into this episode. Uh, the cast includes Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Charlie Hunnam, Pam Ferris, and uh, a debut performance by Claire Hope Ashite. And it was co-written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron mm-hmm. and shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, who is uh, known 
lovingly as Chivo by his friends and who will probably be that's that's how anyone refers to him. Yep, so that's how Chivo. we'll be referring to him through the rest of the episode. And um, and yeah, Brandon, so I picked this one a while back at the beginning of the year because to get into history with it, it is one. A, it was a glaring hole in your in your film watch list up until this year. It was. It was. I mean, I, I, I need to make sure I took it off my uh, most popular movies that I haven't watched. Um, yeah, I'd never seen it before. It was one I, I, I guess, had missed along the way. Um, it was also one where in film school they showed several clips from it over and over mm-hmm. and over again. <laughs> so it felt like I'd seen the big parts of it in a way. Um I was uh, I was telling a, a friend of mine this week that we were doing covering this this week and she said like very very sarcastically like oh are you going to talk about the car scene? I was like yes we will be talking about the car scene. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah. And so it's like it kind of becomes like a little bit of a a cliche sometimes in like the film culture world of like oh you love children and men and so yeah it was one that i you'd built up a lot and you were very upset that i hadn't watched it um as were other people like i feel like you'd love that movie why haven't you watched it i'm like i don't know (laughs) um but i loved and i watched like a few months ago um so Mm it's still fresh my mind and i loved it and alfonso caron's director I've, i've appreciated for several years now um and this is like the one everyone kind of talks about um with it and yeah i'm excited to kind of go even just revisit it very soon after watching it and seeing i even purposely think we might cover it at some point didn't really delve into the research of it uh mm-hmm. when i watched a few months back so i'm excited to hear kind of what you have in store for me but then what's your history with it yeah this one this is a big one for me um i so I was 14 when this came out and I had a, I had a good friend who's uh, his parents like were the caretakers for this like hunting resort mm-hmm. in South Carolina where a bunch of like New York stockbrokers would come down on like weekends and go hunting. And so they mm-hmm. had like a really nice house and all this stuff. And one of the things that they had was like an incredible DVD library. And so like part of his parents job and like keeping up with it was they would go to Walmart like every week what was it tuesday the dvds mm-hmm. came out yep like his mom would go to walmart every tuesday and just buy everything off the like new shelf and wow. so like every like every friday night was like i'm going over to their house and we're gonna like if if the if the new york stockbrokers weren't down we would like sneak into the film library and grab something and watch it <laughs> and um and this this friend of mine was like really into like military movies and, and war movies mm-hmm. and and so he had had already watched it. I came over one Friday and like he it had just come out on DVD that Tuesday, but like he had already watched it and he was like, This movie's awesome. So I like I thought it was gonna be like an action movie, you know, yeah. it was just like par for the course for for kind of his picks. And we started watching it and I and I always cite this movie as like I was I was a film buff from a very young age, but for me, like and so like I knew that like movies were art you know mm-hmm. but in my mind like new movies weren't art it was like old movies are art. yeah like all all the good stuff's been done like i had already seen hitchcock at that point i'd already seen spielberg i'd already seen casablanca i was mm-hmm. like old movies are art. new movies are fun but they're new movies yeah and and this was the movie i was like 14 we put this on and i'm just like this is this is art uh this is like it like blew my mind yeah i was like this is like a, a 
modern classic in the moment um it's funny i was listening to uh to phil dunster who plays jamie tart on ted lasso he was on brett goldstein's mm-hmm. podcast and uh they were talking about like what's a movie that's like really important to you as they do on the mo- on the podcast and he said children of men is the movie that made me realize that movies could be art mm-hmm. and i was like wow that's the exact same experience i had and then he said something else a little bit later on about uh about the that valiant that disney movie about mm-hmm. the with you and mcgregor about pigeons yeah it was like what's a movie nobody saw that you like and he said that one and i was like that came out like right when i was like 12 maybe like i definitely rented that one from blockbuster and i was like how old is phil dunster and i looked it up and we're like four days apart in age <laughs> and i was like yeah that that checks out like this movie movie hit like right at the time that we were like developing to be like oh my god this is crazy this is valiant baby <laughs> it's been one that like i you know and and then as, as i continued into kind of studying film from a critical sense in in undergrad we we didn't really talk about contemporary movies that often either so it was one that i always felt kind of like for a long time i felt kind of gaslit where i'd be like oh children of men have you seen it and like nobody had seen it and then you know gravity came out in 2013 and everyone started talking because that was Cuaron's first film since this one and so everybody kind of starts talking about alfonso Cuaron again and so then that's like perfect timing that by the time we hit film school in 2014 like every class was was like let's talk about long takes let's watch the car scene from <laughs> children of men so yeah. then like you said then it did kind of become like a cliche film school film but but, but i went probably from 14 until 22 like trying to get people to talk about it with me and nobody would so i mean that sounds like clive owen's career though right (laughs) that like he's just one of those guys like he should be a much bigger yeah actor than what he is Mm -hmm. like i feel the same way about chiotel for, but um, i agree with that too (laughs) we can talk about that too so uh so let's let's dive into how it got into production okay uh so children of men was a novel that was published in 1992 by mm-hmm. pd james uh as a post-apocalyptic sci-fi political thriller this novel was a notable change from james's regular work um pd james really had made a name for herself through the 60s and 70s as a prolific writer of mystery fiction she was kind of seen as the second coming of agatha christie um she had a, a long series of detective novels about a scotland yard detective named uh adam dagliesh uh i think a lot of younger a lot of people our age are probably more familiar with her she wrote a novel in 2011 that was hugely popular called death comes to pemberley that was a murder mystery that was set within pride and prejudice oh. uh, it was like a huge bestseller um and she published it just before her death in 2012 that's interesting but children of men was received uh very well critically uh wasn't as popular as her detective novels but the option for the book uh sold by 1995 to beacon pictures which was the production company owned founded and owned by army and bernstein do you uh does that name ring any bells to you army and bernstein any any cinenation super fans out there might recognize bernstein as the as the young writer who was hired to write his first screenplay for thank god it's friday oh my god (laughs) (laughs) it all comes back to thank god it's friday wow that's wild Uh, Bernstein had founded Beacon Pictures in 1990 but by Mm -hmm. 1997 when they finally acquired the script they were really starting to find their footing they had released 
uh, Air Force One that year and mm. obviously made a made a decent amount of money. Yeah. So Beacon gets the rights to the book and they bring on Paul Chart to have a crack at the script. Uh, Chart was an independent British filmmaker who had been working since the mid 80s, but had just made a splash with his film American Perfect uh, that came out in, in 2000 or in 1996. It was a uh, Robert Forster, Veruza Balk. Mm. I've never seen it. I looked it up. I saw it. And then at some point in the late nineties, uh, Beacon takes charts version of the script and passes it off to screenwriting pair, Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby. Uh, Fergus and Ostby were a rising pair of screenwriters who had been kind of taking meetings around town, but hadn't had a film produced yet. But they would eventually go on to write a little movie in 2008 called Iron Man that, uh, you know, I think was fairly successful. Yeah. It's wild <laughs> that, like, you watch, you look at those, those early Marvel films and it's like, yeah, these guys never wrote for Marvel again. <laughs> they did, however, uh, write uh, Cowboys and Aliens. So I they saw, did keep just, working with John Favreau. Yeah. <laughs> So in 2001, this film, the script's been, the book's been around for nine years now. The script's been passed around two different sets of writers. Uh, filmmaker Alfonso Cuaron is doing festival rounds with his indie hit, You Too Mama Tambien. Mm -hmm. And he's starting to get scripts from studios that are eager to bring him on to their next project. You know, it's interesting. I've never really, until kind of working on this episode, I've kind of known Del Toro and Cuaron's backgrounds, but I've never really considered that they both kind of, like came to America, made mm. English language films, but it wasn't until they kind of went back and made a big Spanish language film that they really started getting attention from the film studios. You know, we, we talked with Del Toro with Mimic and then and then The Orphanage um, and with uh, Cuaron, he had done uh, Little Princess and Great Expectations in America. And then he mm. went back and did Utu Mama Tambien. Devil's Backbone devil's backbone yeah, yeah. Seth the orphanage yes yeah uh the devil's backbone yes he produced yeah. the orphanage um but yeah so it was it was really you know Corona had been around since uh, the pretty much all the 90s mm -hmm. in in american filmmaking but it was itumama tambien that kind mm -hmm. of launched him there's a great I, I remember him talking about great expectations and someone's like yeah like i love i love the david lean version he goes yes so did i that's why i made it remade it and it didn't work <laughs> I look, I've I've seen every uh, actually I haven't watched the uh, FX did one like this year. Yeah, they did. Uh, but I've seen every adaptation of Great Expectations except for that one. I do love Great Expectations. I even like the one that that other guy from Harry Potter did. Um, Mike Newell. Uh, Mike Newell did one. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But Quaron had told his agent he didn't want to see. He's getting you know all these scripts are coming in. He said tell all these production companies I want two page summaries. I don't want to see a script yet. I just don't have time gonna look at two page summaries mm -hmm. uh so children of men had come across his desk at some point in that form and he he had read it but he said he wasn't very interested in the story of the script necessarily it was a fairly faithful adaptation of the novel which we'll get to in a minute um but something of it kind of stuck in his mind mm -hmm. so a few months later he's at the toronto film festival and uh for september 11th 2001 so he ends up uh, stuck in Toronto with Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna. They're all stuck in Toronto for about a week and a half. And Devil's Backbone you know, premiered there at the exact same time. Oh, look at yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, international travel was was weird for a while there. So um, 
So he said they were the three of them were just kind of kicking it around Toronto and he's watching the news. He's seeing, you know, how the world is like immediately changing after the mm-hmm. attacks on September 11th. And he says he's thinking that, you know, that children of men might be a way to address all of this. Mm-hmm. So he, he goes back to the uh, he goes back to the summary that he's gotten. He keeps it in mind. And a few months later, he meets with screenwriter Timothy Sexton who had worked with uh, Quaron's colleague uh, in Uritu mm-hmm. on uh, Amores Peros a mm-hmm. year before. Uh, Sexton had done some of the English translations for the script for Amores Peros. Uh, so Quaron hands Sexton the novel and the previous version of the script and says, I'm not reading either of these. You read it and tell me if there's anything we can use to write our own script. Yeah. So let's take a second to talk about the novel because the changes that sexton made are significant in the novel theo is an oxford professor uh the situation in the world is the same although the setting is 2021 instead of 2027 but the death of the youngest person in the world is also a major event in the book's opening but kind of the youngest generation of people are called omegas and they're all treated they're all treated as like royalty like like omegas are are like the upper class because they're the youngest and they're the best. Uh, Theo is approached by Julian and Rolf, a cup, a married couple who are trying to start a political dissident party called the five fishes. They ask for Theo's help and help in preparing their political declaration and presenting it to his cousin, Zan who named himself to the totalitarian role of warden of England in 2006. At the time, Zan had appointed Theo as his top advisor when he took power, but Theo had resigned soon after to become to return to his life as an Oxford professor. Mm-hmm. Zan receives Theo, but is, he's angered by the proposals from the Five Fishes, vowing to round them up as enemies of the state. When returning to warn the Five Fishes of the danger that's coming, Julian reveals to Theo that she is pregnant. It is also revealed that the father of the child is not her husband, Rolf, but Luke, a priest and member of the Fishes. Angered, Rolf betrays the rest of the fishes to Zan, who comes to their hideout to kill them himself. Theo and Zan face off in a duel, but Zan is momentarily distracted by hearing the cries of a newborn baby for the first time. Theo then kills Zan in the duel, and in removing Zan's coronation ring, becomes the new leader of England. That's a very different story. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, obviously what Quaron and Sexton uh, come away with is very different. But they came away with a version of the script that's that's pretty close to what made it to the screen. Uh, and they took it to Universal, where Beacon had a uh, producing deal, but Universal didn't want it. At this point, uh, Quaron's already scheduled to make Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, so he has to put the project down for a while. But he says it stuck in his head the whole time he was making Prisoner of Azkaban. He had already decided that his close friend and collaborator, the DP on Itumama Tambien, Emmanuel Lebeski, Chivo, uh, was going to be the DP for this film. If he he already had him attached, even though the film you know wasn't made yeah. yet, he yeah. he was collaborating with him on it. And Quaron said he spent many nights on Prisoner of Azkaban talking with Chivo about what Children of Men might look like if they could ever get the green light. After Prisoner of Azkaban's finished, before it comes out, it's you know it's can't really say buzz because it, it's a harry potter movie <laughs> like yeah everybody knows it's gonna do well and um, it's the best one so yeah there you go <laughs> uh but quaron's really poised to make his jump from independent filmmaker to to big hollywood director yeah uh universal calls him back and they say hey we'll take 
children do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Coron says Stacy Snyder, who was the head of the studio, called him and said, I don't understand this film. I have no idea what you want to do with it, but go ahead and do it. He said, okay. <laughs> Bet. The only, uh, the only condition, well, they had a few conditions. The first condition was they wanted another pass at the script from a Hollywood type, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they brought in David Arata, who had recently written Tony Scott's Spy Game, uh, but with the <laughs> promise that he would not alter the structure that Quaron and Sexton had created. It sounds like it was just like like dialogue punch yeah, up, yeah. you know. I love the different things that are connecting of episodes we've done before. Yeah, yeah. Spy Keep Game going with back. Tony Scott. <laughs> well, he also uh, I, when I was looking up David Arata, they said one of the uh, you know all these all these screenwriters have these like what if yeah uh, scripts that they almost made. Uh, David Arata collaborated with db weiss from game of thrones mm-hmm. and peter weir on a book adaptation that peter weir was going to direct in like 2005 that wow. that never went through for the film's location quaron already knew he wanted to shoot at the you know at the film setting of london uh, which he had been envisioning while working there on harry potter quaron told his production designers jim clay and jeffrey kirkland to travel to mexico city and he said make south london look more mexico was his uh oh that's interesting his terms uh, Clay and Kirkland ended up traveling the world to visit kind of the most crowded urban areas, eventually coming away with a design plan that would combine the structure of international shanty towns with the monochrome bleakness of England. They said they uh, they said they showed Quaron a bunch of pictures they'd taken in like India and uh, of these like shanty towns, and he was like, "It's too colorful. You gotta sap. It's England. You gotta take all the color out of it." One of the other conditions that Universal had was they would give they were gonna give quaron a list of five male leads five female leads and he had to pick off of that list um god this feels like barry linden with kubrick like hey pick (laughs) pick one of the biggest stars they can do barry linden exactly they said we don't we don't have a lot of faith in this movie but we have faith in stars what a time that doesn't happen anymore no um so they said here's our five stars that you can have and quaron was thrilled to see clive owen on the list um that's he surprising said Clive Owen was on that list. I gotta be real. Yeah. It's surprising. Yeah, yeah. Well, he said Clive Owen was 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 riding the wave of Mike Nichols Closer had come out the year before. And, oh. and so like this he was he was getting a lot of attention because of that movie. Um but Quaron had been a big fan of his since Mike Hodges' film Croupier in, in the late nineties. He's great in. So he saw it he Quaron said he can't even remember who else was on that list. He he just like Skimmed over at Clive Owen. Yes, done. That guy. (laughs) Uh, On the list of five female stars, uh, he immediately picked Julianne Moore because he had said he hadn't expressed it to the studio, but he had always thought in his mind that Julian should be someone who was not British because Mm. it would be, you know, an an interesting idea given all the themes of refugees and immigrants if if she was someone whose homeland was already gone, which they they talk about briefly about something happening in new york and and killing her family mm-hmm. uh as for michael kane quaron said he was not aware that kane was a fairly conservative person when he pitched him to play a pot smoking hippie uh kane was seemed not sure about the role as they were discussing it but then he remarked uh he, he told quaron that he had known john lennon and would it be okay if he played the character as john lennon and quaron said that that's perfect do that, yeah. that explains the hair <laughs> yeah. and the glasses and the glasses and the pot and the pot yes. strawberry cough and just like it's listening to random music mm-hmm. god yeah the moment he's like uh 
listening to like the the heavy metal like Apex techno. Twin. Yeah. Mm. I was like, it's late. That's night. early dubstep. That's yeah. 2006 dubstep. <laughs> That's um, yeah, it's on the forefront. Uh. For the look of the film, Quaron and Chivo told the crew they wanted the movie to look more like the Battle of Algiers over Blade Runner, favoring mm. a documentary style of visual storytelling and for it to be as realistic and non-sci-fi as possible. Well, that's that's smart. So, we'll keep we'll keep it brief to preserve your voice, but let's uh <laughs> let's do some let's do some favorite scenes. I mean, the opening is just a phenomenal way to draw us into the movie. In the you world, get, oh, in man. the world of the movie, yeah, it drops you right into that world, and you get everything. You get Baby Diego, you already, you get all the exposition you need, and then boom, Children of Men. But you also you do a great intro like to his character, where like he feels like he cares the least about this. Yeah, every, everybody's crying, and he just pushes through the crowd, gets his coffee, and leaves. But that that like I don't, I can't think of it's got a, it's like in the hall of fame for scenes that just let you know exactly what you're in for. Yeah. The, the, that woman like walking towards the camera, holding her arm yeah. for like a split second and then yelling and then children of men. Yeah. With the ringing, the ringing still going in your ears. That's the thing where you're like, Oh, what am I in for? <laughs> Honestly, that's what, it, that's what comes off as. And then you have this, like Clive Owen again. What I love about him is like, like he is very much his everyman character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like with Owen, he's a character who could go be James Bond. That's the whole thing. An actor who mm-hmm. could be. And he plays his character the exact opposite. Is that yeah. he doesn't want to be a hero. He doesn't want to do anything. Like it's the it's like the most relatable part of the movie is when like he leaves work. He's like, Yeah, the baby Diego thing, like really has me like more upset than I thought I'd be when he just like he just wants to leave work. That's all. I just want to go hang out with my pot dealer. Yeah. What's well, his dad, right? Is that his dad? I've always I thought it was because at one point Julianne Moore says, "I heard about I heard about what happened to your mom. I'm sorry." And so I always assumed that J- maybe he's not. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's like, um. I guess just a friend. I or they just I guess they're really close. But I just remember Julianne Moore at one point said, I'm sorry to hear about your mom. And I always assumed that was him commenting on like the kind of can't can't catatonic yeah. wife of Jasper. Hmm. It's never the thing is it's never clearly defined, which hmm. is a key to this movie, is that what I love about it is that it does have a lot of unanswered questions. Oh yeah. It doesn't tell you everything. Doesn't tell you everyone's relationship doesn't tell you what happens to certain people they're just it, in and it out. might be it might be the tightest script to have six credited writers on it <laughs> it's, um, it's yeah. funny at the at the end of the movie when that credits page pops up and you're like oh that's a lot of people but yeah. um it's it is an incredibly tight script i mean mm-hmm. you get exactly what you need and you don't get anything you don't need at all i agree um and then you're not even given some things that you might want but then, and then the Julianne Moore stuff, because why I think is so fascinating with her character is that, like, she's really not in this movie much, is the thing. Like, Mm-mm. that was the surprising thing when I saw this, especially when I've seen the, the car scene of the movie so many times without the movie, mm. is that happens very early on in the film. And, again, in comparison to the book, where she's kind of the person 
Is it she's the one that gets pregnant, right? Yeah, in she's the, book? the yeah. one. She's the pregnant one. Yeah. Is they can't they they kind of go against that, and it's a good like bait and switch where it's Julianne Moore. She's gonna be the big like her and Clive Owen are the big two big heroes here, mm-hmm. and they just kill her off like very quickly. They got great chemistry. They, yeah. they've got I love all the scenes of the two of them. You know, the scene of them on the bus is great. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, oh, you always walk away from everything. She's like, ah, oh, this is our stop. This is our stop. <laughs> he has to like sprint off the bus. Yeah. And then and then you have the like the the ping pong uh like ball mm-hmm. they 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 throw back where it's just like they're back together again is what it feels like. And it's mm-hmm. a, again in terms of great direction and great writing, where you have this such kind of an emotional high of them finally kind of reuniting in a way everybody's laughing yeah. everybody's having a good time in the car and then it's like nope yep that's it that's the end of that that's the end of that it's over um let's, let's talk let's talk a little bit more about the car scene then shall we yeah 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 uh i mean we'll get it we'll get into the technicalities of it as we go but i mean that is just you're you're stuck you can't yeah. get out of it you want to get out of it you know, it's like you don't want to be there for all yeah. of that necessarily. Um, and 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 I th- we've talked about kind of long takes on this uh, on on here before. We've talked about Birdman, which which yeah. was also shot by Chivo. Um, and and the different ways that that long takes work. But I think one of the things they're going for here is is you know even though cuts are often imperceptible to us as a movie audience. It is it is a, a break. It is mm-hmm. getting you out of one shot and getting you into another shot. It's it's like closing your eyes for a moment. It, it it gives you the ability to escape from what is from what is going on directly in front of you. And and in these action scenes, you can't. It's like yeah. you, you literally can't look away. You're stuck there with Theo. And and he's such a good like you said, he's such a good everyman that that we do feel stuck there next to him. I think mm-hmm. something I never thought about before watching it this time around is, and, and, and I love this decision, but, um, and obviously this is a, is a conscious choice from the book adaptation. Um, Theo never picks a gun up in this movie mm-hmm. ever. There's no, like, you know, there's no scene where he picks up a pistol and pop, 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 pop. Oh, yeah. you know, I used to be a freedom fighter. I still got it. In me. And it's like, no, yeah. he, he, Theo doesn't do anything in this movie that like none of us could do. And that makes it, yeah. that makes us feel so much more realistically yeah. like stuck there with him. He's a reluctant, every moment. He's a reluctant hero is the thing. Um, yeah. and, and, and if any of us tried to escape from a, from a compound with an old car, we'd probably end up in the same situation. Yeah. Wearing no shoes, like going through the mud. Um, but yeah, with the one take again, talk about the idea of cutting. It's like a cut, like I said, it can in certain moments can relieve tension, is the thing. Mm-hmm. And with many of these, the people who can master a good one take, um, and Corona and Karan and Chivo do it several times in this movie, um, is that you have to make sure the tension keeps building if you're not cutting. Mm-hmm. And they do it here. They do it in the the bigger one, which I think might be more impressive. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, is later when they're going through the city and going through a, through the building and everything. Um, is that yeah? It, it you have to keep building and building and building it. And what's so odd about this one? Why it's so unique is because it's a shot that's so big but so confined mm-hmm. is the thing, and that's what makes it so. I think full of tension and suspense in the moment is the thing there's, there's so much going on bigger, yeah but there's you're still so stuck. many 
there's so many extras there's bike stunts there's fires but but you're there in the car yeah but but also the camera is constantly moving to remind you you know it's it's the windshield cracking it's it's chotel's character freaking out it's it's back to you know how's she doing how's she doing back to julian morse oh she looks awful she, yeah. she's not gonna make it back to the, the cops driving past then they're turning around mm-hmm. miriam's freaking out because they're turning around it's yeah it's it's they're they're telling you exactly where to look yeah and they're not and by not using which is often what you know editing is used for what mm-hmm. what shot choice is used for but by eliminating that they are they're directing your eye while also saying you can't you can't look away from this for yeah. a second we, we tell you exactly where to look um yeah i mean we'll, we'll get to the we'll get to the final battle but yeah i think i think it's done incredibly well there i do want to talk about the the escape from the from the safe house because i, I mm-hmm. just i i love that scene i think it is the silence of and the sound design in this movie is mm-hmm. also great but you know you've got the the roosters crowing and all this stuff and 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 he goes through and pulls all the the keys out of the car and and very stealthily moving and then he starts rolling the car and it can't start and they're all chasing him by foot it's so clumsy you know it's it's like mm-hmm it's 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 the anti-born escape (laughs) like nothing works everybody's clumsy you've got that great shot of of uh charlie hunnam like running up and pointing the pistol in his face and like can i shoot him can i shoot him i've got a clean shot and and then key just opens the door and he he like knocks him into a hay bale yeah Yeah. (laughs) and then and then theo has to get out and push and then miriam starts leaving him and then key makes him stop and wait on him it's 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 so awkward and clumsy but I, it makes it like i said it, it makes it yeah. feel like yeah if i tried to do that that's exactly what would happen too which i think raises the stakes you can never there's never a moment in this movie like a james bond movie where you sit back and go like he's gonna figure his way out of this you know yeah. it's you don't you don't ever have that assurance but like and the thing is too with that it doesn't feel cliche when it's not working does that make sense it's like mm-hmm. i'm reminded of like the harm we were like i go run in my car and then i put go to grab my keys oh i forgot my keys mm-hmm. like that's not that is like this is yeah, he's, a, that he's a smart guy he's a resourceful yeah. guy but he's not superhuman in any way yes exactly exactly and to backtrack a little bit with that is i love the reveal that key is pregnant mm-hmm. is the thing when they're in the um when they're in the barn and she reveals it and she's like in amongst the cows and everything and like that's when like for theo that's when he realizes he can't go back yeah nothing's the same after that nothing is the same because now he has this piece of information and because it's almost like continuing the legacy of julian is Mm -hmm. that he's now burdened with this and he can't let key fall to these people who will use it for could use it for bad because they've killed someone that he loves dearly what else will they do mm-hmm. is the thing yeah you know coron said somebody i saw an interview with him where somebody said was commenting on how bleak this movie is and he said well I, you know it's a movie about hope and uh and it is because you know the 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 absence of children in this movie represents the absence of hope the absence of a future the absence of a generation there's that great mm-hmm. graffiti that he drives past at the beginning that says um could the last one to die please turn off the lights um and and so the the you know the the central kind of thesis of this world is you know what 
what's keeping anyone going if you know that that you're the last um the last of us which the the creator of the last of us has openly said that he was inspired by this movie um but in yeah in that moment any that the baby is hope key is hope or pregnancy is hope and and for theo that gives him back obviously hope but also this kind of some sort of idea of, of goodness of, mm. of being a good person uh obviously for luke and the remaining fishes the, their hope is in in leading a, a rebellion yeah and and their ideas just don't align and, and which is when theo realizes he has to get her out of there yeah and then they go to see michael kane um yes. as jasper um, and I love the moment too when like he gets there and like thinks Jasper's dead. Yeah. And he's like, oh God. And then Kane just like, what the what the fuck? Like just like just like <laughs> just like violently wakes up. Um I think it's great. And I think again, that moment again, they again talk about a tight script. They handle exposition well, where it's like, Yeah, this whole scene where Michael Kane talks about what happened to Clive Owen's kid that's such a great line of dialogue too he was like he was the perfect little baby he had tiny feet tiny hands and tiny lungs and then the flu pandemic came it's like it's so it's beautiful jasper is such a like breath of fresh air i love michael Michael k in this movie i love michael k in this movie this movie would be so soul crushing without jasper in it you know it's like he's the only ray of sunshine in this movie but then it becomes soul crushing because of what happens to him is the thing yes yeah. Like, but I love the use of of Ruby Tuesday, the song, the cut, it's mm-hmm. cover of the Rolling Stones song. So beautiful when he's like essentially killing his wife, basically what it mm-hmm. is. Like, it's like, because they, they reference early on, like, oh, it's a good way to go, like painful or painless. Yeah. And he basically knows, like, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And, and Karan shoots it and Chivo shoot it, like, because Owen's watching it. They shoot it at a distance, mm-hmm. which makes it even more brutal, is yeah. the thing. It's all Weirdly, wide fr- yeah. fr- from his from his point of view, yeah. And like, and because he doesn't go down, like he has three shots basically, mm-hmm. and and the 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 reverb, the vibrations of the gunshot, the echo through the through the woods, and like then Clive Owens like when he's leaving, um, and Miriam's like, I'm so sorry, like, don't you touch me, just like, mm-hmm. and basically says, don't tell her. Because the key asks, how's Jasper? He's fine. And they leave. Yeah. Like, it's like immediately, again, he's having to be a hero when he doesn't want to be, is the mm-hmm. thing. So. So, yeah. And then they, they meet Sid, who's a character. Yes. First to himself in third person. Uh, very interesting. Sid doesn't need to know. Sid doesn't need to know. Um, and, then they're, and then they're at uh, the refugee camp. And it is just non-stop from there mm-hmm. to the end i mean obviously yeah. the 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 big battle scene is is the notable one but the the bus ride into it is is literally just a bus ride straight into hell yes yes you, you've got all these images of uh, obviously for 2006 we're recalling the abu Ghraib images you've got these people with bags on their heads being pushed around being put into cages yeah and they they take oh man when they take miriam it is it is wild it is yeah because she basically, she's basically like having to come. She has to sacrifice herself yeah. to save Key because Key's having contractions. And 
starting to like go into go into labor and Miriam has to basically pretend to be having a moment with God mm-hmm. to get to Bay. And then Clive Owen like has to be like, there's piss right there, piss. And yeah. like get get like get them away from her. Um, but it is very much like it's Dante stripping the hell, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like it's very much like we're going deeper and deeper into this other world, basically. And there's something really jarring. I want to take a second here to talk about the theme of like animals in the film because yes everyone everyone has animals and there's something i think it's i think it's more it's something that was brought over from the book but like never addressed as i Mm -hmm. as i I read that in the book it it's like everyone is it's very it's 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 very forefront that like everyone has taken what affection you would have for animals and or for babies and has put it into animals for this Mm -hmm. like everyone has a pet and and here it's used the presence of animals is often used to show theo as a good person like animals all like theo yes and and it's just a sign for us that like he he's a he's a good person deep down mm-hmm. um but that also makes it very jarring when we get to the refugee camp and are confronted with these like german shepherds you know mm-hmm. it's like we've we've seen ant where there's been these like good animals throughout the whole movie and then there's like evil evil animals here <laughs> like it's all it's almost more jarring than than i mean because we've yeah. seen plenty of evil people so far in the movie but um but to be having these these you know military dogs in everybody's face is is i find really jarring in that scene yeah um <laughs> i was just gonna say that you know they get in they they get to shelter and we have the the childbirth scene mm-hmm. um and then sid comes for them in the morning and that's when we get into the the big scene yes which is it's, just incredible it's a doozy it yeah. is uh it's 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 one that you almost can't talk about because like <laughs> in terms of like in terms of like teaching at a film school because like it's almost something you can't do like the car thing i think you can eventually figure out because it's so contained but this shot of him running the city going up the building awesome is just so elaborate and difficult to do it's it's masterful is the thing and you can't really it's like so hard to analyze because like i remember ebert with his review just like you get to the point where like it feels so realistic that you just have to like sit with it if that makes sense in a way mm-hmm. like it's no longer a set it's like you feel like you're in this world and it's a perfect shot that just they really kind of again talking about the productions i haven't like looking at mexico city and other places everything just comes together in this moment and again you're watching this reluctant hero try to piece everything together and sacrifice himself and or possibly sacrifice himself in a very fearful moment to 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 basically help the future he might not see is the thing if that makes sense Mm -hmm. it's not actually said in this shot (laughs) but that's what like it's leading to basically is the thing yeah yeah so i mean you get so within this shot they escape from sid they get out the building that sid's been chasing them we get uh theo bashing sid's head in with a microwave yep uh and then they take to the streets they're headed uh you know to get a, a boat and uh well that's 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 before they they get into the guy with the so they get into the house with the parrot guy, whatever, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they they leave to go get to the boat, which is when our wonder starts. Um, 
but that's when they're confronted by the fishes. They're pretty sure they're going to die. They kill the guy that's that's taking him to the boat. Army rolls up. Theo escapes, but Luke has Key and the baby. Mm-hmm. Theo has to chase after him. Luke has taken them into this building that has now been beset upon by soldiers. Mm-hmm. Theo's got to get into it. He's moving through this bus. It's getting shot up. Gets into the building. Gets all the way up to the top. Luke has the baby. They have their kind of final confrontation uh, with a just fantastic final scene from Chotel Ejiofor. Mm-hmm. And then the baby starts crying and you have that kind of moment of, of final moment of peace and silence as, as everyone cease fires to, to let yeah. this baby exit. But it, it cuts before that. It cuts, it, cuts when, in. Yeah. it cuts when he sits down with Chiwetel, I believe. Yeah, it's when Chiwetel shoots him. Mm-hmm. When he's trying to leave. Yeah, that's the cut is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an incredible sequence. And then like I said, when they're leaving, and then again, it leads in this great reveal where like, they're getting out. Everyone just kind of sees it's a baby and kind of like lets them go. Mm-hmm. Like doesn't question it. Doesn't. It's like they're so stunned. Yeah, by... multiple different like militias and factions like coming past them, and but they 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 all hear the baby and they just all freeze. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, it's a moment of hope. Every, it is, everybody it is. for a second, it's like peace and hope, and then one rocket goes off, and then they just go right back to it. Goes back to it, but. And then it leads to that moment of them getting on the boat, uh, or the like, the little boat, and 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 it's the um, what's the lady's name? They have Mariska. Mariska. Mm-hmm. Where, where where like they're yeah Mariska yeah like, uh when they're when he's like trying to get on the boat she's like no no no, no. like go like it's like it's just such a it's a, it's a and then you get on like the the foggy ocean, it's such a haunting image. Mm-hmm. And then you get the reveal that they've hidden very well is that he's been shot. Um, and good chance doesn't actually say it. Good chance he dies at the end. Is the yeah? Thing. No, he's 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 done. He's I've seen people <laughs> I've seen people call this an ambiguous ending. I, I I don't think it's that ambiguous. Um, there's a lot of blood on the bottom of that boat. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, then we're out. Well, let's get into how they made some of those scenes. Uh, so. Quaron credits both Chivo and Clive Owen as writers on the film as well, but you know there are just too many, too many writers on that uh, on that credit card. Uh, five five because, writers. Yeah, he says once production began, the script became secondary to the camera and the blocking. On set, the three men were often collaborating on how the camera and the blocking could better inform the storytelling. A quote from Quaron says, "The rhythm of the scenes was on Clive's shoulders because everything was pivoting around him." He's the pivot of the scene, so he arrives and stuff happens. So in many ways, he was an amazing filmmaker. At the end of a long shot, he says, you know, I think we can speed it up. You know, you're not going to be doing that in the editing room. You have to do it in the scene. The whole film was a triad with Chivo, Clive, and me. So let's get into what everybody's really here for, how they pulled off those long takes. (laughs) Uh, As Brandon and I said, if you've ever taken a film class, you've probably watched some kind of making of for the uh, for the car scene at some point in your life. But we're going to we're going to get into it anyway. Uh, so Quaron says he knew from the script stage which scenes he wanted to shoot long. He said, very early it was very clear to me that it was going to be a one-shot deal. It was this whole idea of being there in the moment with the character and experiencing violence. We didn't want to glamorize violence. When you constantly cut out back forward, you're presenting the cool ways for a car to crash, as opposed to the random way in which violence happens. 
So it was on the page more or less, but then you get to the simple thing of how do you put it together? So that's, that's something, you know, we, we, we kind of talked about previously, like it doesn't, it doesn't make it a movie. It makes it it real in that style. So Chivo balked at the idea of shooting this scene in a car as one long take telling Quaron the first time he pitched it to him that it was impossible. Mm-hmm. Quaron knew the only thing Chivo would hate more than trying to pull off this one take would be shooting it on a green screen. So <laughs> Quaron said, fine, fine, we'll just shoot it on a green screen. I, I learned how to do that pretty well on Harry Potter. Uh, Chivo stormed out of the meeting saying, if you shoot this movie on a green screen, I quit. <laughs> the next day he came back to Quaron and said, okay, I talked to my friend, we can do this. So that night it seems that chivo had come up with the idea of suspending a camera down from the roof of the car one that can move freely within the car uh while also being able to pan and tilt so it's it's almost like taking the idea of a dolly and Mm. inverting it um Mm. chivo had called up his friend gary thielches at doggy cam who had invented a camera that operated on a stick so that's kind of half of the movement that chivo needs this um Dilkit has has this the doggy cam is like a long pole that has mm-hmm. a camera on the end of it and then it can it can spin pan what uh tilt whatever you oh. need on the end of the pole so chivo got in touch with him and said we want i want to take a doggy cam and hang it down from the roof but then i also need the base of that pole to be able to move freely within the roof mm-hmm so uh with chivo's input the folks at doggy cam created power slide which was a rig that would then let the doggy cam move in all directions throughout the car while suspended downward from the roof so the car was built to allow four people to sit on the roof it had like housing on the roof kind of like you know when you see those uh you see like a van that has like the extra storage added onto the roof it was kind of like that it had a little pod that sat on the roof and Quaron, Chivo, the focus puller, and the doggy cam operator could all fit in there mm-hmm. while the scene was being shot. Within the car, the seat was modified with remote-controlled seats that could tilt or lower the actors to get them in and out of the shots and away from the camera as it moved around the inside of the car. Mm-hmm. And the windshield was rigged to tilt back to allow the camera to move back, kind of out the backing of the camera could could move back to where the glass would be so that they could get wide on everybody in the car if they needed to okay uh digital blends were of course used to combine the the rest of the shot the whole thing wasn't actually one shot um an estimated five transitions were used in the car scene uh two shots were combined digitally for the coffee shop bombing and five takes over two locations were combined for the final battle scene which i think the, the most obvious one being the transition from outside the building to inside the building those are mm-hmm you know two separate locations and and obviously stitched together but that brings us to the battle scene and the infamous blood spatter so the battle scene was a beast to choreograph between actors pyrotechnics camera and etc uh so the studio the producers had given Quaron 14 days to shoot this scene by day 12 they hadn't shot any footage yet whoa they were still figuring out the blocking the timing the pyrotechnics it's you know it's, it's a lot jesus uh but quaron remembers a steady stream of universal execs coming to check on them as they fell further and further behind schedule i think he said like day six their like junior production exec came out like day eight 
the like head of the production department had come out and then like day 12 the head of universal was on set <laughs> everybody's just like what are we doing let's get this <laughs> but the entire take took about half a day to shoot it would take you know it was a six minute take but yeah. it took about five hours to reset all the reset, actors yeah. reset the pyro cues reset the set dressing clear out the rubble meaning that only two takes were possible per day and they are on day 12 and they haven't shot anything yet. Remember when I say you almost can't talk about this because you can't really replicate <laughs> it? My yes. point stands. My because point it shouldn't stands. happen. It, it shouldn't should... happen. It should not be feasible to do this shot. So Quaron finally rolls on the first take, he said, after lunch on day 13. <laughs> so they've already missed one of their four remaining takes. Uh, they roll on the first take on day 13, and after about a minute and a half, something goes wrong, and Quaron calls cut. By that point, it's too late to reset and go again. Yeah. So they just finish resetting and call it a day. And they're heading into day 14 with nothing in the can. <laughs> <clears throat> the first shot of day 14 goes remarkably well until camera operator George Richardson tripped just before making it to the doorway of the oh, final building. No. So we're going into the uh, we're going to the final take that the schedule allows. The final day, yeah. The final take that is possible. And about halfway through, just as Theo is uh, taking cover inside a van, a bus, a hollowed out bus, a squib explodes and splatters the camera with blood droplets. Uh, Quaron, he said, he just instinctively he just calls cut. He's like in his mind, he's like maybe we can. Maybe we can pull off one more. Maybe they'll let us go over tonight. But there's blood on the camera. We can't see anything. Calls cut. Uh, Chivo doesn't cut. To this day, uh, to this day, Chivo says that he couldn't hear Quaron over an explosion that goes off. But uh, Chivo's gone. Quaron's gone back and forth in interviews as to whether he thinks Chivo was just ignoring him or not. <laughs> But he said when the takes finished and they called cut, Chivo just started dancing like crazy. And I was like, no, we didn't get it. There's blood. And Chivo turns to me and says, you stupid. That was a miracle. <laughs> so Quaron and Chivo had actually already discussed inserting digital blood spray onto the lens when Julian gets shot in the car. They were mm -hmm. going to do that in post. So Chivo says, just do the blood here, not in the car. Yeah. You're already going to do it. So just leave it. Uh, so Coron agrees and the shot that he thought was failed is, is good and it's in the can and they're, they're good to go. She was like, I, I, I bet he didn't say, I bet he heard him. I bet he just kept going. <laughs> I think it's that. I think, I mean, I don't know. It, it, I think, I think it, it, if you're so close with your director, you'd be like, man, screw that. I'm going. I guess. And that. then I, I think they, I think they do a good job with, so when it, so when you have that digital cut to get into the building, mm -hmm. they then digitally put a little bit of blood on the camera. So some kind of is removed in that they pan through. It's it's the same thing Chivo yeah. uses for Birdman. You you move through a dark doorway. Yeah. You cut there, and when and when we get into the building, some of the blood's gone, but there's still a little bit. Still there. Yeah, and yeah. then there's there's another pan that doesn't actually hide a cut, but it does give you the opportunity to remove some of the blood drops. So they, they or they, they tilt up to look up the staircase and you have a moment where it kind of passes over some blackness and they remove some more blood drops. And then there's yeah. just like one. And then as they're going up the stairs, they just kind of, 
get rid of that like dissolve that one as well mm-hmm. so then by the time you get to like the big final scene with uh Chiwetel, it's all gone but um i think it's, it's very let well be, done l- let me be completely honest with you i never noticed the blood splatter until you brought this up really honestly i and and it and it's not because i'm not paying attention i just i guess i just thought it worked so well <laughs> it didn't bother me is the thing that was one that like blew my mind when I saw it the first time. I was like, "Whoa, the the camera, the camera's right there." Like, I remember, I remember this blood splattering. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it staying on the camera for so long. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, I've heard I've heard some people say they think it ruins this scene because it calls attention to the camera. But but yeah, I don't. I, I think again, we've been there right behind Theo. I feel like for this whole movie, so it's 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 more like it's just on us. Yeah, I think it's fine. It's mm-hmm. fine. The only long take that was not planned from the script was the burst scene. Mm. Quaron had not planned on shooting that with a single take, but when visiting the set, he it just hit him. He was like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's do it in a oneer. So the special effects team had to rush to create a rig that Claire Hope Ashate as key could climb into as Clive Owen is pushing Marishka and her dog out the door. So mm-hmm. you've got Mariska kind of leads him into the room. Clive, uh, Theo puts her down on the bed. Then the camera follows Theo as he like kind of ushers her out. Meanwhile, she's climbing into this thing. It's similar to like a magician's box sawing trick where she climbs onto the mattress. Her torso is still visible. Her legs go down. And then we've got like a fake set of, of legs uh, for the delivery of the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the nature of the long take, a prosthetic baby was used, but VFX artists from Frame Store painted over the baby to give it some motion and expression in that scene. So, no, uh, no American Sniper baby dolls in this one, you know. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Moving into our aftermath, mm-hmm. the film premiered at the 63rd Venice Film Festival in September of 2006 to rave reviews. Movie received instant acclaim with Roger Ebert giving it four stars. Uh, Manola Dargis of the New York Times called it a superbly directed political thriller. Uh, Dana Steves of Slate called it the herald of a blessed event, the arrival of a great director by the name of Alfonso Cuaron. After seeing the film, author P.D. James praised it, expressing approval of the many changes that were made to her source work. Mm-hmm. The film was released on September 22nd in England, debuting at number one to $2.4 million. It then saw a notoriously botched U.S. release, uh, putting it out on Christmas weekend of 2006. I don't know. What was that weekend? Well, let's see. Let's see. Christmas. Night at the Museum, Dreamgirls, Pursuit of Happiness, Rocky Balboa, the top five. Oh, Good Shepherd. Here's the, I think I saw three of those in um, theaters. Let's hit the top I, ten. Uh, the the 2000s Black Christmas remake. Didn't see that one uh, in theaters. We Are Marshall. Uh, I saw We Are Marshall in theaters. I, I saw it in theaters too. Yeah. Uh, Aragon. Did that in theaters? But the I holiday. People, I knew people who loved that. I I don't know if I saw the holiday in theaters or not. I know I saw it when it came out, either on video or in theaters. Mm. And and Charlotte's Web. Didn't see that. Uh, but anyway, you know this is this is not the movie that you go see on Christmas weekend. No, was it a wide release Christmas weekend? <clears throat> it was it was limited. I think okay. it was like 1200, 1200 screens. 
but um, that's still pretty big. Yeah. At that point, that's pretty yeah. It, big. It, it it wasn't like a uh, it it was as big as it got. Like it it was a limited release, but they didn't like uh, tier it or anything. Yeah, that's pretty big. Like uh, I think it's like four theaters, <clears throat> two in New York, two in L.A. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Universal kind of blew this one because uh, it ultimately made only thirty five point five million domestic, coming out with a uh, sixty nine point six million dollars worldwide against a seventy five million dollar budget. So it was regarded as a failure financially. I mean, here's the thing about this business, Thomas. As you know, it's that no matter how long you've been in it, you realize that not mostly no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> and i mean like we're going to this right now with like mission impossible saying like mission impossible is one of the worst like release dates they could have picked because they yep. didn't think barbenheimer would do well yeah like, i've seen so much discourse on Twitter. There, there's been an article <clears throat> well the headline's coming out now that oppenheimer's passed mission impossible and like everyone retweeting it and was like i just want to be clear that mission impossible is a good movie yeah it's just like just a it's a bad like it's like they were they were worried about Indiana Jones five when they should have been worried about this is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um and but it's like I said, no matter you, no matter how long you've been in the business, someone makes these like poor decisions mm-hmm. of when it's released. Yes. Yeah, so I mean the financial fallout of the film may have stalled Coron's career a bit. He didn't make another film until Gravity in twenty thirteen. But it didn't. It didn't hurt the legacy of the film. We'll we'll mm-hmm. say that much. Yeah. The movie was nominated for best adapted screenplay, best cinematography, and best editing at the Oscars, and it won best cinematography and best production design at the Baftas. Mm. Uh, Chivo would lose to Guillermo Navarro for best cinematography for Pan's Labyrinth, while mm. adapted screenplay and editing would go to The Departed. Oh, was that year? Yeah. Yeah. The the two 2000- thousand. 2007 academy awards i really think is is what marks the breakout of the the quote-unquote three amigos uh which is what everybody calls uh mm-hmm. the three mexican directors quoron and Yurito and del toro with del toro winning uh best or being nominated for best foreign language feature for pan's labyrinth and in was nominated for best picture and best director for Babel that year so mm-hmm. all three of them were were up for awards and while Children of Men didn't earn a Best Picture nomination, it was named Best Film of the Year by the Washington Post, the AV Club, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Wow. Peter Travers named the film the second best of the decade behind There Will Be Blood in 2010. Wow. And Metacritic has since put together a super ranking of all films <clears throat> mentioned the most in Best of the Decades lists among all critics. And Children of Men came in at 11. The, the film has continued to enjoy a legacy, both among those returning to it for the artistry uh like like we said the car scene is a staple in film school classes now yep uh and it's also been revisited in in past years for its prescience uh many people cited it during england's brexit the refugee crisis among other right-wing demonstrations against immigrants in recent years throughout the world along with of course its mentions of pollution and world militarization so it's become one when you google children of men there's a lot of articles that were like revisiting children of men in 2017 and then revisiting children of men in 2019 20, yeah. revisiting children of men in 2021 <laughs> it's yeah. like we yeah. just came out of a flu pandemic yep yeah <laughs> so like like many films you know like the pursuit of art within film i think despite being one that did not make it a profit at the box office it mm-hmm. is one that kind of instantly became recognized as, as a work of art and as yeah. you know something that's worth remembering 
So, along with that, Brandon, what works in this movie? I mean, visually, in terms of cinematography, production design, stunning, and is easily some of the best. I mean, again, creating the world of it is so incredible. Direction, the acting, like, I don't really think there's a fault. We haven't really talked much about the acting of the movie, it feels like. Mm-hmm. There's really not a false note in it. Um, no. With any of them. Um, we There's one thing I love we can talk about. It's like Miriam when she's kind of describing how she used to be. She was a midwife and how like she started like the babies just like started or these people started miscarrying. Mm-hmm. And like just that image of her telling that. It's kind of her one big moment in the movie. That just the image she, that she creates what she's saying. It's like that right there like is enough of like. They just, they just, they started miscarrying left yeah. and right, and we didn't know what was going on, and we still don't know what's going on. Is the thing, yeah, and and, and, and that idea of you know this is the way the world ends, not with a bang but a whimper. Just it's yeah. it was it was not some huge apocalyptic event. It was just oh, I checked my schedule and I didn't have any births yeah. scheduled for the next month. Yeah, it was just like oh, what's happening here? Um, and that's a realistic way of how things could possibly happen. Um, but yes, I'm glad you brought that scene up because we might be talking about Pam Ferris a little bit later. Oh, interesting. But yeah, direction's phenomenal. Like there, there's really not much you can like, you, you can praise this film so many different ways from every different aspect of it. It's incredible. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> you know, to, to look into it and see that, that Quaron and Chivo had been kind of planning this for, for years yeah makes a lot of sense because it 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 is so in the camera is so integral to this movie in a great way i don't think personally i don't think in a way that like draws your attention to it i think it it becomes seamless like we said i I, when i watch it i feel inside the movie yeah um and it's such a it's a it's such a bold take on this type of film it's it's interesting to me when people when you do kind of google this and you see it like registered as sci-fi because it, it, it there's nothing there's no neon lights there there's no holograms mm-hmm. there there is nothing you think of as the ordinary trappings of sci-fi in it and that that's all very conscious decision on Quaron's part to make it as realistic as possible mm-hmm. and and i think it absolutely works and then yeah like we, we've said several times but clive owen is is yeah. just i think perfect in this movie he's yeah. he's he's uh, we may have talked about this on the podcast before, but he was someone who's been up for Bond multiple times. Yep. Uh, and, you know, very easily could be James Bond. And, and he's the opposite in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think he is, you know, he's not when you when you he's a very handsome man, but he's not someone that you look at him and you're like, oh, that's James. like Pierce Brosnan couldn't be in this movie. I love Pierce Brosnan. But yeah, you yeah. look at him and you're like, that's James Bond, you know, um, and and Clive Owen can be a regular guy, and he is in this movie. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, does anything not work in this movie? I have one. Okay. Very nitpicky thing. Mm-hmm. The Photoshop of young Michael Caine mm. is some of the worst I've seen. <laughs> there's there's one bad one. I I think I know exactly with his wife. Yeah. And the thing mm-hmm. is, they show like several of them, and I'm like, these all look bad. Yeah, because like it's him younger, but with the hair, and it just feels like they like magazine cut out of Miles Kane's face and put it on like a guy with hair. Yeah, 
It looked bad. That's that's something I've always these movies that like an insane amount of money and creativity and hard work goes into and like nobody ever nails the like no photoshopping of a of a photo together. Well, uh, you found and I were talking about that a lot. Is that like we like making lists or naming off like just like atrocious Photoshop images and movies of like you can tell they're like oh we need to show like old stuff of them together but we gotta do it last minute. Oh, what do we do? Oh, let's just like cut and paste them from these pictures or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that that it was it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, we're really we're really picking nits here, but I that's all I, I had. I, it, it may have it may have been the the streamer that I was watching for it this time. There are a couple of times when some ADR like wasn't mixed like super well for mm. me, and I think the sound mix on this one is so naturalistic and and it works so well. So that mm-hmm. the couple of times you hear you heard something, and it's it sounded like it was recorded in a studio. I was like, oh, that's too clean. That, yeah. <laughs> that audio is too, too clean, clean for, for what's movie. happening right now. Yeah, yeah. I think I noticed it, it once as well. I think I noticed it once as well. Yeah. If that's all you got to say for a movie, then I think I think you're doing Not pretty bad. good. Not bad couple of film facts okay one important change that Quaron made from the book to the film is that he makes women infertile in the film whereas it is men who have mysteriously lost all sperm count in the book uh oh. it is kind of you do kind of have that switch whereas in the uh in the book they think that julian is having a girl and then it turns out to be a boy which ultimately is leads to like hope that you know they will one day be fertile as well uh, okay. uh but Quaron wanted to, in doing that same switch in this movie, from everyone thinks it's going to be a boy to it being a girl, Quaron wanted to lean more into the spiritual iconography, yeah. especially at the end. I think it's really important in that with the scene with Luke where they've envisioned him as this messiah who's going to like lead the fishes to rebellion. Mm-hmm. And then you find out instead it's 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 a girl. It's it's a, it's not Jesus. It's Mary. And, and it yeah. like changes things. You know, it, it kind of breaks him out of his anger for a moment, even. Um, mm-hmm. And so Quaron really wanted that iconography of like having a, a, a woman become the savior. Mm. Uh, Quaron reached out through some very mysterious channels that he doesn't he won't divulge to try to get Banksy to work on the film and do design the graffiti for the film. Um but after a very strange lunch meeting with quote unquote Banksy's manager, uh, in which they sat at two separate tables facing away from each other and he wasn't allowed to look at the manager, uh, the deal didn't work out. It's a very clandestine but, meeting right there. Yeah. But one work by Banksy still appears as Theo is visiting his cousin. It's in like the parking garage as he gets out of the car. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that scene, the David that is seen in that film is an official replica of the David that was on loan from Italy. Uh, An art director on the film had recently seen an article about how Italy wasn't taking proper care of its historic works. And the article featured a cartoon of the David with his leg cut off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the art director wanted to do that here. Um, But the Italian government obviously wouldn't allow this to be done practically. So the leg had to be removed digitally. Okay. While... Quaron wasn't as concerned with futurism as most sci-fi filmmakers would be. A few touches were made to set the film very realistically in 2027. A tall pointy building can be seen in the skyline as Theo is leaving the coffee shop. This is the Spire, a building that had already been designed and planned by the start of production, but wouldn't actually start construction until 2009. The art team obtained plans for the building and had it inserted digitally into the skyline. So it exists now, 
but it didn't exist in 2006. Uh-huh. When production began, London had also recently won its bid to host the 2012 Olympics. Yeah, I had that note so down. Costume, uh, costume designer Janie Timime T- T- put Clive Owen in a worn 2012 London Olympic sweatshirt for much of the third act. That's that's some fun planning ahead. Yeah. Just to be instead of being like, oh, what kind of technology are we going to have? They were like, what's something that we know will be around by, we'll be around. by 2027? Just a couple of acting notes uh, or casting notes. Alfonso Cuaron called Charlie Hunnam directly to offer him a role after seeing him in uh, Cold Mountain. 2003. Not after just, Undeclared? Not after Undeclared. But I do have to wonder if, if it wasn't Cuaron who introduced Hunnam to Del Toro now done uh, oh, pacific rim pacific rim and, and crimson, crimson peak. peak yeah uh clive owen when he was offered this role was pretty close to signing on to be uh the lead in blood diamond and he turned it down to oh. shoot this movie <laughs> i found an interview with uh variety and quaron where he was like oh yeah and, and clive, I, I reached out to him and we're very lucky because he was supposed to do that diamond movie and the interviewer says, oh, Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio? And he was like, yeah, yeah, he, he was going to be the lead until until we got him. And um, and the interviewer says, well, he made the right choice. And Quaron's like, I don't know. Leo was nominated for an Oscar for that one. So. You know, time time does great things for things sometimes. <laughs> I like Blood Diamond. I never saw Blood Diamond. So I, but it's in terms of like how it shifted of like, oh, Blood Diamond's the bigger hit. But then like children men's come up as the i, I think i think blood diamond has been unfairly maligned in the last couple of years leo's given it his all with that south African yeah a lot accent. of people criticize the accent is a thing <laughs> i'll watch it jimon house is very good in it yeah. um one other note for you Cinenation super fans out there clive owen and chiwetel ejiofor would also appear together in another film that was released the same year in 2006 so go listen to our Inside Man episode. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Same year. Right, same year. Hot year for Clive Owen. Hot year for Chiwetel. Not sure either of them has, has ever really hit the let's, potential. Let's oh, I mean, Chiwetel let's, had 12 years of slave. We'll go let's, let's talk about that, though. Like, Because, like, both of them, and the thing is, has even, like, done the Marvel thing. Yeah, and, and like, then I feel like they, they set him up to be, like, the villain for the Strange franchise and then really kind of underused him. And, and it's just a cameo in, in, in Strange 2, mm-hmm. basically. And, like, he was, like you said, he was established like he's going to be the big baddie for Strange and possibly for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Nope. I'm like, come on, guys. You, you have Chiwetel Ejiofor on contract. Come on. Like, and, yeah, it's just, it's wild. Well, I know, like, with 12 years, I don't think he did press for it. Like, um, he didn't do the uh, awards stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. I feel like him and... Yeah, I know Fassbender didn't. I can't remember if he didn't either. Um, But, yeah, it's like... He was in Infinite, which bombed. Lockdown, which didn't do well over COVID. Um, I really liked. He did a BBC series with Matthew Good called uh, "Dancing on the Edge" that was fantastic. Okay, uh, but he's just someone. He's good in absolutely everything you see him in, and you're like, this yeah. guy should be the biggest star in the world. And also, he, and, and that brings us back to Clive Owen. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, both, both of them are that way. And then, I mean, of course, not enough people in the world watch The Nick, but it was one of the best things put on television. Um, 
supposedly coming back i don't know soderbergh who knows so we just put out two tv shows in the last month (laughs) and no one knew about him i was i literally like checked max and it was like wait soderbergh has a show and then where's that michael Sarah one streaming i don't know i see i've seen some clips from it online but i don't even know where to watch it yeah because full circles like timothy Alephant. I mean, the dude just, the dude just, uh, for a retired director, he really doesn't <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, they should both be bigger. Two talented individuals, and they're not big, they're not as, they're not bigger for some reason. Well, with that in mind, let's move into, uh, let's move into awards. Okay. So for our Beatrice Strait Award for actor, actress with limited scenes that kills it. Oh man, who do I have here? What are, what are we, what are we counting as limited scenes? It's a great question. Um... Weirdly, I think Julianne Moore would fit more with limited scenes than <laughs> some of the people that are on here. I mean, Danny Houston. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everyone here knows I'm a character actor guy. Danny Houston's Danny Houston's one of the most reliable. Like, I agree. Anytime Dude, I see and, Danny Houston and, and pop and he's up like as a skinny in this movie. Yeah, maybe I maybe I was just, I was like, whoa, he's actually like really. It's good. like cool, Danny Houston. Like yeah. you know, he's normally yeah. like his, his hair is a little messy. Normally, Danny Houston is like if you need like a really put together, yeah. like kind of duplicitous guy. Like you never really know which side he's on. You yeah. call Danny Houston, but and you like, don't really you don't think like untucked t shirt, loose yeah. jeans, <laughs> kind like, of Danny Houston, like, like wavy hair, like and not saying he's out of shape, but like he's just kind of a kind of a bulky guy. Like very just like solid if that makes any sense, but he's like built in this movie and skinny. I was like, whoa! And like he's what's so funny about it is that I think he's playing. He's a guy who's trying to act younger than what he actually is. If that makes sense mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah, and I think I think he does it well. He does it well. Yeah, he's great. Um, uh, Peter Mullen who plays Sid. Uh, yeah, Westworld Ozark people will, will recognize him. Um, he's really fun for for his limited time charlie hunnam you might be you might not even have recognized him under those dreads but uh charlie hunnam's really fun supporting supporting role yeah uh, if, we're, if we're go ahead if there's another one you got i mean i don't i'm just trying to set up some people so so we can have like the the like michael kane debate for the next uh yeah i i i might go with peter mullen i really okay. like him as an actor mm-hmm. um and, and I think he's like just kind of he's a fun chaotic character if that makes sense oh yeah absolutely it's like you really don't know and then you find out where he, what side he's on by the end of it like it's like yeah he's so like, it really he, does help him out at first and, yeah. then it, and then and then the baby changes everything really yep. but um okay I like that and okay. I love his whole third person thing no idea why Sid, he does it but Sid it's doesn't great. need to know so doesn't want to know all right Peter Mullen um Annie Potts X Factor Award, supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. Okay. I already know which way this is going. I agree with it, but I do got to give a shout out to Pam Ferris real quick because Pam Ferris haunted my nightmares as a with child. That scene? With that scene? No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, Matilda. Matilda scared the absolute shit out of me <laughs> when I was a child. She is so good in that movie. <laughs> And that is mainly that's mainly what I know her from. I, I think she has she's had a very extensive like uh, theater career and and also British television. But um, she is such a completely different 
character in this and she had actually yeah. worked with she had, so she had worked with Quaron. i just read this yeah uh she was the aunt that gets that gets blown up in uh Marge, in, yeah. in prisoner of azkaban yeah um so i think she's the she's the only actor in this that, that he would have worked with previously but um i really like miriam in this i i yeah i think she's a great character and i think ferris gives her a lot of life and um yeah, I wanted to give her a little highlight before we hand this award off to Michael, to Michael Caine, Caine, which is which is deserved. Which, yes, it it yeah. is. It is. It's like he's so good in this role, like as the hippie pot smoking. It's not it's not who would come to mind. You know, you, no. I, I think you, I think you read this me. If you had handed this to me. I probably my first call probably would have been like John Hurt. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, like quirky, older hippie dude. Um but yeah, he's he nails it. Like Michael Gambon, you know, they easily yeah. they easily could have just had Michael Gambon do this. He just he Corona just worked with him. Um, because I I didn't know when I came in, when I came in this the first time. I didn't know he was in this movie. And when I saw him, I was like, that's an odd choice. <laughs> he's great. He he, he, he knowing now that he was like kind of reluctant to take the role. He 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 dives into it 100 percent and just mm-hmm. the like pull my finger and the constantly smoking pot it's just like it's very fun to see him in as a hippie and like i said i think it's just like you have to have him in this movie or it's yeah or it's there there's nothing he, he is the only like hope and happiness until the baby comes along yeah all right here we go gene hackman mvp award the person who carries this movie I mean, I think it has to be Karan here. Like, I just yes. think Alfonso, Clive Owen's great. I also didn't mention it if this if this also helps your argument. Quorum uh, was the co-editor on this film. Yeah, that yeah that should. I mean, granted, he shot a lot of wonders, so he didn't have. To, <laughs> I'm kidding. Editing in camera. Yeah, he still had to edit. Um, Co-writer, director, editor, assembled yep. the team, talked to Chivo for years about visualizing it before it even happened. Yeah, I think it's him easily. Just it's just it's 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 pitch perfect in directing, and it's something that it'll probably. I mean, I, I, he's made great films, but this one I think is the one that has and will continue to have the 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 longest impact. Mm-hmm. Is the thing. Yeah, that's what you know. That when I was talking about earlier about feeling kind of gaslit about this movie when. I, I was very impressed with Gravity, but when Gravity came out, and everybody was like, "Oh my god, it's so visually amazing!" I'm like watch children of men yeah like i appreciate gravity but like story-wise you know children of men's got a lot more going on and there are some in- incredible shots in in children of men if that's what you're into do you think chivo on gravity is like i'm not shooting this green screen <laughs> like we're going to that's space so we're going to space happening. all right mvp award gene Hackman mvp award going to alfonso Cuaron for children of men it's it's why we haven't seen the movie in five years is the thing too yep he takes long breaks he does. Yeah. He does. So you know when when you when you shoot movies that way, waiting until the fourteenth day of your fourteen day schedule to shoot a five hour take, uh, you know you can't you can't replicate that. I think he did yeah. say I saw an interview where somebody was like, you know, kind of like, were you in movie jail after this failed? And he was like, yeah, like no one was like, no one was knocking down my door for me to make a movie for him, but I also yeah. like wasn't pitching things. Like I was exhausted after this. Yeah. Um, so. You know. I know he's doing an Apple TV show with Kate Blanchett and Kevin Kline, Ooh. which I'm excited for just based off that cast. Mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett, Kevin, Kate Blanchett, Kevin Kline, 
Sasha Baron Cohen, Cody Smith McPhee. Interesting. Okay, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so final questions. Brandon, you're in the casting chair today. Who's your... If you're if you're making this, we're almost to if, or if you start now, you could release this in 2027. Yeah. Uh who would you cast in your modern remake? Let's see. Um I'm still kind of missing like a British guy for Clive, for Clive's character. I have an American guy, but I don't want I don't want to do that if I can. Um I'll I'll go with I'll go with a few so for um Chewtail's character for Luke I got John Boyega mm. for that. I like John Boyega. Yeah. Um, I had Dan Kaluuya as well. Mm-hmm. He's he's done the kind of villain yeah. in, in, in Widows. Yeah. yeah. But I think Boyega would be kind of fun to see in this role. Mm-hmm. Um, for, um, okay, for Miriam, not British, but Margot Martindale? <laughs> I'm never going to say no to Margot Martindale. She could do a British accent, or, I'm sure. Or, or Anne Dowd, another one that's pretty good. That's really also, good. never going to say no to Anne Dowd. Yeah. Actually, no, I'm, I take that back. I did I did put someone down for Clive Owen's character. I, okay. He's my top choice, but I'll get to him later. Um, for Julian, I have one American and one non-American person okay. for this. Um, the American is Emma Stone. Ooh, I realize their the ages don't really match up for the the lead person. Um, I had Emma Stone and Ade Armos as okay Julian, but let me find. I think that could, with with Quaron's envisioning of of Julian being, uh, you know, uh, an immigrant herself. I think he had originally said he had pictured her as French. But then when, when he saw Julianne Moore on the list, he, he said, oh, Julianne Her. Moore, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, the next person I have for, so I want to see if I can get a better one for that. Here, I'll give you, I'll give you my Clive Owen, my Theo. Mm-hmm. And then we can see what we want to do with Julian. Cause Theo, I have Carl Urban. Oh, okay. I like that. Yeah. I think he'd be really good in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, I had Josh Hartnett down because I've just seen Oppenheimer, so he's like on my mind. We're in the Hartnett. We're in the yeah. Hartnett Renaissance. I but still haven't I, seen the the Guy Ritchie one, but I've heard he's very good in that one too. I watched that on a pl- on the plane, and he is good. He should have been in it more. Hmm. That was a big complaint. Um. So yeah, how do you feel about that? Is is there is the age difference too big? It's like sixteen years is the thing. Carl Urban is. Um, oh, Urban's fifty-one. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's too different. Let's see. Oh, Rachel McAdams. Yeah, sold. Yeah, Rachel McAdams. Sold. Yeah, Carl Urban. Sold. Let's go. Okay. Yeah. I love when you just like I'm looking at names and then they just hit you. Oh, that's the person. Mm-hmm. Someone uh, that, that like just I think also someone that should be bigger than what she is. Honestly, weirdly enough, like mm-hmm. she's big. But she's like, she's taking a lot. She's taking time off in between stuff a lot. But 
and just completely unutilized in the Doctor Strange movies. But that's neither here nor there. Anyone for Jasper? Um, great question. Oh, I wrote down Gary Oldman. Oh, okay. For that like one. That. You know, keep it in the in the Batman. Keep the keep the little Gary Oldman supporting roles going. Yeah. You know, just keep doing it. Um Yeah. Or you do Mark Rylance if you want to go like really Ooh, crazy. I think that'd be fun. Let's go Mark Rylance. All right. Okay, so we have Okay. We have John Boyega as Luke. Margaret Martindale as Miriam. Um, I think we were unknown for Key because mm-hmm. it was her debut. Um, Rach McCams for Julian, Carl Urban for um, uh, Theo, and then Mark Ryan's for for Jasper. Let's That's do a solid it. cast. Mm-hmm. I'm down with that. I say let's do it, and, and no one should ever attempt to remake <laughs> this. Like we said with the uh, with why they don't teach the battle scene in film school. Um, yeah should never be tried again uh so we're here for dystopian month but does this film fit with any other genres um is it an on the run movie could you put would, yeah. it, could it, would it be that like it's that it's that weird kind of road yeah. road movie but not but like bad road movie like yeah <laughs> like the road um yeah it's a nightmare is mm-hmm. the thing um I mean, yeah, the other like is is it an action is it a thriller um it's it's there very much sits in the dystopian i don't know if i would i mean would you say it's post-apocalyptic even there's still that, i still mean a, that that's it's, the it's, interesting one here like like i was saying at the top of the show you know it is it's it it is that's the interesting concept for this movie is is there has not been an apocalyptic event like the world yeah. has not ended but it is ending yeah there's a there's a time clock and in 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 that time clock starting people have started acting like the world's already over um mm-hmm. and you know we're we're in england for the whole time but we're told that like england is the only country left standing left. at yes. this point uh so so it is you know there has there's no there hasn't been the apocalypse yet but it's coming and yeah. everyone knows and so everyone is behaving as if it is after the apocalypse yeah so how does this fit within our dystopian genre well it's set in a distant a, a, a not so distant future um and it's kind of we're talking about it's, it's this like a society is is hanging on by a thread is i think something that comes up with the with the these type movies Society hanging on by a thread in terms of like a government is put in place to like put a lot of limitations on things, even when like people's lives are trying to go about as normal. Um, mm-hmm. You have this kind of um, protections that that government puts on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's again and with this dystopian thing, it's like you have to kind of give some sort of explanation of why we're here, like why you're in the mm-hmm. place you're at. And just the idea of like a simple thing of we stopped having kids. I said, there's a ticking clock of the end of the world. And the -hmm. world is basically trying to prepare for that to happen is the thing. Um, What are your thoughts on that? On on that question? I mean, I think, I think the dystopian film always has some kind of like lesson to it or or something about um, where we're headed. And, and that's the interesting 
I think thing with with Coron's changes is is you know there's obviously nothing there's no answer to the infertility. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like it's kind of like the leftovers. Like there there's no answer into why this happened or how to stop it. Yeah. The only ans- the only answers here are like how to not handle something like this happening. You yeah. Know? Don't be don't be anti uh, refugee. You know don't be fascist. Uh, mm-hmm support each other in in the end of the world and and yeah so i i think this one is is a little interesting in that there are no it's not like oh ai ai did this don't let ai happen or don't experiment on on apes or you know um there is it's not a cautionary tale for how to prevent this from happening but it is kind of a a fable for how to not treat each other if it does yes. happen it's it's it teaches you hope if that makes sense as you said like like how to keep hope, how to have faith in mm-hmm. something. Yeah. How to, how to navigate through a bleak world is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is very much just like, uh, what happened is not really preventable because it just happened and it wasn't the rest to blame. How we reacted to how we reacted to it is what caused everything to crumble basically. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. Ending this episode on a high note as we will probably be for for much of the month. So much uh, bleakness this <laughs> month. It's gonna be wonderful. Um, yeah. So that's it on Shortman. How do you feel? I'm. I'm. You know what? I'm glad we got to talk about it. I'm just glad you watched it for a Finally second knocked, time. Two times. Second, twice now. Yeah. Yeah. Who'd have thought? Came into 2023. Not watched it. Seen it twice now. Hell yeah! Wonderful. Um, but next week, next week we're we'll talking about John Frankenheimer's Seconds, starring Rock Hudson. Very different dystopian movie is the thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm excited about. Have you ever seen Seconds? I don't know if you. I have not. Okay, I'm ex- that's why I got picked it. I wanted to see what you thought of it. Mm-hmm. It's something that where it deals with more technology and kind of a, a, a dystopian future, similar to this, where it's like it's it's society is still there. But stuff is happening that could move towards something else. Mm-hmm. So prepare for that very ahead of its time. I'm excited about it. Excited to hear what you think of it, Thomas. And hopefully y'all can find it. Um, also, be sure to to join our Patreon if you haven't already to get more exclusive content uh, from our show. Last one we did more. We had the live action Al Minkin stuff with Newsies and Enchanted. So check that out. Um, also, if you're in the LA area, Coming up soon, we're doing our screening of Family of the Paradise in the New Art Theater on August 11th. Tickets are on sale. Uh, get them now while you can. Um, hope to see you there. But that's all we have for you in this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to kind us at cinenationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, anything you want to say to us, totally fine. We'll read it. We'll, we might re- respond. Who knows? Um, and if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so as soon as possible. So you can stay updated on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us review on your preferred podcast platform. I think a lesson we all learned here today is kindness for others. It'd be really kind, you know. Just leave us a review. That'd be nice. And and don't knock us if you hate my voice this episode. I'm sorry. We're, I did we're, my we're best. hoping we're hoping he'll be we're hoping he'll be healed very soon. Hope I hope so. I hope so. This thing with a tight schedule. We just have to keep going no matter what. That's what we do. Um, and finally, don't forget to land follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Is is it called X now? Are we calling it X or is it still Twitter? 
Um, Instagram, Letterbox, and TikTok. Um, Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching Children of Men, Brandon. Anytime. Anytime. Now I can say that. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.